uh, turn to Genesis 3 is where we will be today. Uh, During the season of Advent, we take these four Sunday mornings together for us to consider the first coming of Christ. And so we, as we gather over the next several weeks, we're going to do just that. We're going to consider the first coming of Christ. Now, to do that, several ways that we could, but to do that, we're going to look at the unfolding story in Scripture of the God-man, the one who was promised, the one who can and does deliver God's people fully. Much like Christmas morning, full of anticipation, do you know that the Bible unfolds a story that creates great anticipation of a coming Savior, a seed of a woman, a servant, a priest to mediate, a person to restore, a child who, could, who would be born to bring peace. Our Bibles is a wonderful read. There's a beautiful story unfolding, creating anticipation. And we pray that over the next several weeks, that is exactly what, it, what will happen in our hearts. That Christmas would not come and go as just another season, but an opportunity for us to feel the weight of what we celebrate during this season, because Jesus was the long-awaited one, the anointed one who would save his people from their sin. This is good news. This is very good news. For us to see that over the next four weeks, this morning, I think it's important, important for us to start at the beginning. Seems like the right place to start when you think about a story is to start where? At the beginning, to see the beauty of this season. Now, we spent a lot of time in Genesis, so a little bit of review. Genesis 1 through 2, chapters 1 and 2, tell us of a glorious creation formed out of nothing. That's fairly phenomenal. (laughs) A glorious creation formed out of nothing by God. Days one through three, God forms the earth. Days four to six, he fills the earth, to which the pinnacle of that filling was humanity. You see, creation was not only glorious, but it was also filled with all that humanity needed to be sustained, to rest in, if you will, with no worries. It was a creation that put on display the goodness of God. More specifically, it put on display his transcendence. You may be going, What does that mean? Well, this is the attribute of God that refers to him being holy and distinctly separated from creation. But yet, as creation puts on display his transcendence, it does something else in really, honestly, a profound way. It not only puts on display his transcendence, but his eminence. What is this? Maybe a small plug for the attributes of God in Jared's class. 
Yes, it shows the power of our Creator who is holy and distinctly separated, but yet it also shows us in a profound way His eminence. This is the ideal that God is present in, close to, and involved with creation. Our God is not far off aloof, but He is present. God is both transcendent, but yet he is imminent. Because of this, because of creation, because of God's transcendence and his eminence, creation was a place that showed more than anywhere our dependence upon him. It made plain just how much we need him. Creation was a complete place, full of provision, and more importantly, full of God's presence. A display of just how otherworldly he is, but yet a place where his presence was. Mankind, man and woman, Adam and Eve, needed only to enjoy, to rest if you will again, with no worries. To care for, to enjoy, to do as God instructed. It was heaven on earth, if you will. That's the last time I'll say if you will. Everything necessary to be satisfied Isn't that a word that just sometimes is slippery, isn't it? We feel so unsettled. Well, this is the one place where everything necessary to be satisfied, settled, sustained. I can't think of another S word. But to be sustained, everything necessary was right there. Even God's presence. Oh, it was glorious. With that backdrop, look at me with Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was present, obviously. Side note, who was with her? And he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Yes, that's how you say that word. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Though everything necessary was already created, already there for Adam and Eve to not worry, here comes the serpent to cast doubt in their minds, to cast doubt in the minds of our first parents. Everything they could ever possibly want is there to simply enjoy. And here comes the serpent to cast doubt in their minds. He does this first by questioning God's word. Did you hear that? Is that really what God said? And asking this question, he focuses really on one part of the creation, right? The trees in the midst of the garden. Now, these trees, or at least one, it surely did have special instructions attached to it. Genesis 2, verse 17 does say, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, like all of creation, these instructions, this instruction around this tree is intended to put on display that all God has created by his word is enough. In essence, it is reminding them to simply listen to God's word. To simply be obedient, be at rest with what God has said. There is no need to seek knowledge outside of God's revelation. Adam and Eve, look around. See the goodness of God. See it. Smell the hint of deception in the statement. What do you mean? Look around, serpent. These instructions, in some ways, to make plain all that they have is enough. Their response is to simply listen. No need to seek knowledge outside of God's own revelation in front of them. He is supreme. You know, the writer of Proverbs kind of picks up on this. Remember what he says about knowledge? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If there was a commentary on this verse, is it not here? Serpent, you're a fool. Look around. What God has said is now in front of us. So that measly old tree there is best for us to listen. For us to pursue knowledge outside of God's revelation is sinful. Because we know the beginning of knowledge is fear the Lord, listening, respect, taking his word as it is true. Because the pursuit of knowledge outside of God's revelation in the garden is sinful. Why? Because it asserts something, human autonomy. It neglects the fear of the Lord. Wait a minute, serpent. Let's talk to the Lord about this. 
Let me, let me go to him. You see, sin would have us question God's word. Yeah, is that really what he said? Well, I don't know. Let's go ask. <laughs> Let's go see. Because when I take in God's revelation around me, I'm pretty sure he has a really good answer. But here we see the though everything they could possibly desire is in front of them. There's a, a questioning, casting doubt in the minds of our first parents. And secondly, the serpent cast doubt in the minds of our first parents by discrediting God's word. You surely will not die. That's not really going to happen, is it? There's no way. You know what? God is just trying to scare you. He's not telling the truth. Satan, we can say a lot of things about the serpent, but it's Satan, okay? The great deceiver. He is trying to cast doubt on the truthfulness of God. He's trying to make God's words less weighty, right? It's a pretty strategic move because if you discredit God's word, then they are of little value. Is he telling the truth? <laughs> you're not, you're not going to die. He doesn't mean that. This discrediting so that you don't have to pay attention, so that you don't have to look towards God's word, it actually leads to the other more offensive tactic, if you will, that the serpent uses to cast doubt into the minds of Adam and Eve. Lastly, do you see what the, the serpent does here? Satan maligns. Now, if that word doesn't land on you very well, smear, vilify God's character. Do you hear what he said? No, 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 no. you're not going to die. Here's actually what's going to happen. Here's what's actually behind all of these statements. Here's what the Lord is really doing. God knows that the day you eat, your eyes are going to be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's actually holding you back. He's actually terrible. Scared and afraid of what you might know. How Satan is vilifying God in this moment. Oh, isn't he cruel? And no, we, we know this is not what is happening. Because God knows that if they eat, it will be ruinous. Because it puts on display that they don't actually trust God. You see, it's actually God's character that is loving, kind, holy, and all-knowing that gives the instruction. You see, he's not a scared individual hiding behind a curtain, afraid of what you'll find out. He's not sitting behind something scared that you're going to find out what he knows. Satan is spreading a lie about God. This is 
radically offensive, and yet in front of them is everything they could possibly desire that is putting on display the goodness of God. And here what we see is a drawing out. Is that really who God is? Can you really trust him? Is that really what is meant by that? And by the way, he's got a hidden motive. God has a hidden, he's, he's sitting behind the curtain and he's so afraid of what you're going to find out. This entices our first parent, and with one bite of the apple, Adam and Eve plunge all of humanity into sin. What a wild backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2. You may be thinking, well, Pastor, with one bite of an apple, Adam and Eve plunge the entire humanity into sin? Yes. How is that? Well, Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin And so death spread to all men because all sin. Do you know if you look at the word all underneath that translation, you know what it means? All. I paid a lot of money to go to seminary to know that. It's plain. The scripture is telling us that this one event caused death to spread to all men because what all sin. In some way, and we can grab coffee and talk about all the ways why this is. But in Adam, in some way, represented all of humanity. And in this disobedience became our disobedience. This questioning of God's word casted doubt. This discrediting of God's truthfulness. This maligning and smearing of his character that he has hidden motives. It plunged them into disobedience. And in some way, this becomes our disobedience. And, and history tells us that many have tried to make sense of that. And seriously, I'll grab coffee. I'd love to have that conversation of how that's true. But Romans 5 makes it plain that this event isn't just on this page. It's the entirety of the rest of the story. But yet, they had everything they could possibly want in front of them. It's at this point, on page 2 of my Bible that there is a major turn. Sin is here, and it is ruinous. This is my new favorite word, ruinous. The creating God has given humanity all it needed, and in one moment, his goodness is questioned. Doubt is cast. All of humanity is thrown into the chaotic effects of sin. Don't believe me? Read the rest of Genesis. But for this morning, let's read the next section, verses 8 through 19. And they heard, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Sounds like a nice morning, doesn't it? (laughs) And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, some things never change. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and, and I ate. 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. There's a drastic shift in the story here, isn't there? Something has radically occurred. Rather than free fellowship with God, they hide themselves. They are afraid. We know how this shift has occurred. It's plain. It's simple. It's called sin. Disobedience, deception, listening to someone else more than God. It causes a radical change and difference. What we have here now is quite the opposite of what they enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. One scholar put it this way, whereas the pair had life, they now have death. Where they had pleasure, they now have pain. Where abundance, now a meager substance. And where perfect union and communion, now alienation and conflict. How miserable. If we forget just how ruinous sin is, consider the contrast from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. It's drastic. And it's written in a way to make us feel the weight of what they are now missing. Their perfect surroundings have now become a constant reminder of their rebellion. Where are you? I'm here. We are so afraid. We hid ourselves. God then begins to, in turn, deal with each person. In this sad state of affairs, in this heart-wrenching moment, gut-crushing moment, the Lord begins to work his way through each player. He starts with the serpent. The Lord starts by telling the serpent that he is cursed. Now, fortunately for the woman and the man, they will not have to be cursed. It's the serpent who is forever cursed and defeated. Now, we, and I said this earlier, but just to be plain, we could explore many things in terms of the serpent, but what is plain here for our purposes this morning is that the serpent is the great deceiver. It's Satan. 
Because of this deception, because of the work of casting doubt in the minds of our first parents, leading man and woman into rebellion, because of this, the serpent will be cursed to live out its days in humiliation, on the ground with the dust. You may be thinking, isn't that where it is always lived? It doesn't actually see that the ground is a new place for the serpent to roam. But, but rather what is being emphasized here is the ultimate reality is forever. The serpent's ultimate reality is forever now marked by humiliation. You will be in the low place within the livestock and the beast of the field. That seems to be what is intended here. Then verse 15 gives us the final verdict on the serpent, on Satan's consequences. In this gloomy, dark day, we get a fresh word of hope. Perhaps it's a seed of hope that is being planted here. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The ultimate consequence that Satan will endure is ultimate defeat. You see, that's the difference between. Though it looks like the serpent has slithered in, has cast out, drawn them away, it looks like he has won. But the Lord points to a future time that he, the great deceiver, will receive the death blow. It will strike, Satan will strike at the woman's offspring, bruising his heel. Painful, but it's an injury that can be overcome. But the woman's offspring will then turn and bruise his head, a wound that administers the death blow. And isn't this verse just fascinating? In a very gloomy, crazy moment for humanity, there's this fascinating verse that looks at the great deceiver and says, eh, it looks like you've won, but in the end, you're not going to. And this has been fascinating, and rightly so, and it's captured the attention of Christians for centuries, and even Adam that we'll see in a moment. It's been called the Proto-Evangelium. You like that word? I even put it up there for you. What simply means first gospel. For centuries, as Christians have scoured the Bible, they have read from cover to cover, this all of a sudden stands out as a declaration of God's provision in one of the darkest moments of humanity. It is here in the third chapter of our Bibles where the gospel, the good news of our redemption from this terrible day is told to us. And it's told to us in a very odd way that this redemption, this salvation, this defeat of the deceiver will come in a most unique way. The, the woman, though childbearing will be marked by pain, it actually will bring Humanity's salvation, oh, how odd. From her seed, her offspring, 
Adam, man, humanity will be saved and the devil defeated. Here's a, a glimmer of hope of hinting at something glorious that will to come. If you don't believe me that that's how they perceived it, well, the, her, the hope is actually further articulated. Listen as I read 20 and 21. Just listen to this, okay? The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You may be wondering, how do we see this as hopeful? Well, here, Adam turns looks at the woman, and in a tremendous act of love, he names her Eve. You want to take a guess at what that means? Life giver. When he hears the consequences being doled out, cast upon everyone, he hears the glimmer of hope, and he looks at Eve. And rather than blame at this time, what does he do? He affirms. In faith, he celebrates what God has just said in the Proto-Evangelium. He has picked up on it. His ears have perked up. His mind has said, whoa, wait a second. Though defeat is evidence and we are reminded of our rebellion, there is hope. Oh, Eve, you're the giver of life. He looks at the woman, his wife, and declares her great task, life giver. From childbearing, she offers life physically, but we know there's more going on here. And it seems that Adam understands at least a little bit, offering spiritual life. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, 12, when he makes this wonderful observation. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. That's a logical conclusion. And he's picking up on the life that is given to men through what? Childbearing. He sees and understands what is happening here. But ultimately, her seed, her offspring, is the great hope of mankind. Well beyond just physical life. The New Testament writers see it in the same way. Do you know that when Matthew and Luke record the birth announcement of Jesus Christ, what do they do? The angels come to the woman Mary. They tell her that she will bear a child who will be called, what? The Holy Son of God. What will he do? Save his people from their sin. That victory. Is going to be won from her offspring. All of that is grounded in this promise here in Genesis 3.15. And Adam sees it, although dimly, and then he names Eve accordingly. He believes the Lord is doing something. And then the Lord does something wonderful, intimate for them. He provides them clothing. This clothing and this provision requires death, the killing of animals to cover them. What a beautiful picture of what is to come. In the darkest, lowest moments of Adam and Eve, 
There stands God providing for them. In their sin, he provides. In their nakedness, in their shame, they still need the Lord. They still need him. Question, discredit, malign his character all you want. You still need him. And in the darkest moments, who's there? The Lord. Making provisions. Here's where we see an offspring is coming. The entirety of Genesis from this point forward is very concerned about lineage. We read it over and over again. Now, man and woman are not left out. The effects of sin radically influence them, right? Right? Yes, we know. Husband and wife, do we know? Yes, we know. We know the effects of sin. We feel it every day. I'd encourage you, we've, we've looked at this text before, go back, listen to previous sermons where we discussed it. The roles of male and female from this point forward will be nothing but conflict. Will there be glorious moments? Oh yeah, there will. But it will be struggle, each trying to take control of the other. Conflict abounds between genders, but we have a good reason why. We have clarity. But even in the conflict, what is in the middle of the conflict? A glimmer of hope, a seed of hope that is being planted right here. Conflict will abound between husband and wife. Instead of unity and harmony, there's strife and difficulty. But what do we find out about our first parents is that their ultimate, our ultimate consequence is actually stated at the end. Verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Though verse 15 is a seed of hope and it has been planted and declared by the Lord. Because we know he does not lie. We know that he is truthful. We know that his character is good. So what he has said we know is firmly planted and said here. Though that glimmer of hope is there, now the time has come for our first parents to face their ultimate and most decisive consequence removal from the Garden of Eden. And we gloss over that and don't think much of that, but that is significant. The place, everything they could have possibly needed, and God's presence fully, they are removed. Not only are they removed, but they are not allowed access any longer to it. Here we have specifically mentioned that access to the tree of life. One commentary put it this way, and it's so simply put, the tree of knowledge represents the command of the Lord to obey. And if the human couple chose to comply, the tree of life would have been theirs to enjoy. But now that possibility is rescinded. Disobedience has doomed them to mortality. The separation from the tree of life makes them vulnerable. And their mortality is evident. They don't have access any longer to life eternal. A crushing and 
decisive consequence that was told them in chapter 2 about the result of sin. You remember this? They would surely die. It's actually true. He was telling the truth. Here it is. Death spiritually and death physically will be their end. Dust you shall return. Someone else now guards the garden. Humanity's way back is more than hard. (laughs) It's actually resisted. It is made plain that humanity cannot save himself. You don't believe me? Read the entirety of the rest of the Bible. (laughs) Offspring, lineage, seed, prophet, king, just can't seem to save ourselves. This is what we're left with. Outside the garden, unable to save themselves. The very next chapter is strife between two seeds. (laughs) Two offsprings of Eve, Cain and Abel. The effects of that first disobedience, it doesn't take long. That sin is now on display. It is evident in the seas, in the offspring of Eve. It actually looks bleak. There's her two children, neither of them. And it looks ruinous from this point. But there's hope because God does not lie. God has planted firmly in Genesis 3 a seed of hope. That a divine human will save. You may be saying, Pastor, divine human? Well, we know he'll be human. Why? Offspring of the woman. That's fairly plain. Uh, Need a lesson on that? Maybe we could have coffee later, but that's how that works. We also know that this offspring of the woman, and as we see in the very next chapter, how fraught with problems they are, but there's something about this particular offspring, though human, has tremendous power. Tremendous power to bring ultimate defeat to the great enemy. Here, in the beginning pages of our Bible, lays before us a seed of hope planted that a divine human will save. What do we celebrate this Christmas? That the divine human has come. And has saved his people from their sin. This is incredible news. In the third page of our Bibles. Here is God preparing for the first Christmas morning. Here is God making a way even in our darkest day. Do not let this Christmas season, the first advent of Christ, distract from the provision of God in Christ. In their sin. That's the most staggering thing is I've revisited this, that in their darkest sin, most rebellious moment, there's God (laughs) providing for them. From this point forward, as we're going to trace over the next couple of weeks, do you know what God does? He does exactly what he said he would do. Though the serpent questions, discredits, maligns his character, God remains faithful. 
And through the pages of our Bible, what we see over and over again is he does what he says. He holds to his promises. He upholds his goodness all along the way. Come to find out he knows better. He knows what is best for us. Perhaps in this Advent season, uniquely since we've looked at this text, we want to be focused and be overwhelmed with how God has provided for us. Perhaps uniquely in this moment, let us be mindful as we reflect on the coming of Christ that sin would love to question God's word in your life. He was surely, is that, is that what he said? Are you sure? You know, some things just never change when it comes to sin and deception. It all starts with, eh, is that really what God said? But isn't this what we see in Matthew 4 when our Savior is being tempted? Yeah, is that what God said? Sin would have us discredit God's word. He doesn't really mean what he says. But most grievous for us this morning, sin would have us malign God's character. There is nothing worse than questioning God's good intentions. Looking at the good intentions of God and manipulating them in such a way to now turn them into evil intent. And all we see in the pages of our Bible is the goodness of God providing for humanity. Christmas is the answer to all those false accusations that are hurled at Adam and Eve. Oh, you want to question me? Oh, you want to discredit, malign my character? Well, guess what? A seed is coming. Christmas is the answer to all of that. Let us reflect. Let us be mindful of God's provision even at our worst moments. Let us flee from the falsities of sin and cling to our Savior, Christ. What's so amazing is that Christmas reminds us that our worst moments of humanity, there's the goodness of God providing. A seed of hope was planted. This morning, if you have further questions about that, please stick around. Grab somebody. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged on this first Sunday of Advent. God does what he says. A seed of hope was planted, and Advent reminds us of God's fulfillment of all his promises. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for this time together. There's so much to think and consider and rejoice over that I just... I feel like I could just talk for hours. Um, but Lord, I pray that your spirit is, is doing a much greater work as we think and contemplate what Genesis 3 reveals for us. So Father, we ask that you would go with us today, work in our hearts, remind us of the glorious truths as we celebrate Advent this season. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.